from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here to listen in on our conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life. That's your family, your community, our society, your private self, who you are as an individual human being, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, also of our leadership program. I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership, and you can find out about our services and the work we do to help people and organizations create greater harmony among the different parts of life and improve performance in all the different parts. You can visit totalleadership.org to see the free chapters from books, articles, videos, assessment tools, lots of stuff there. New episodes of our show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can find free podcast versions of the show a little while down the road at totalleadership.org. You can follow us on Twitter, SXM Business, or me, I'm at Stu Friedman. Well, the fight for social justice is a major theme in our world today. And our guest, who I'm really excited to be speaking with, is on the front lines of uh, the, that struggle and has been for a couple decades. He's the first ever vice president for social equity and community at the University of Pennsylvania, a role he assumed uh, in June of 2020. But he's long been part of the Philadelphia community as Penn's university chaplain. So I am delighted to, re- to welcome the Reverend Charles Chaz Howard to the program. Chaz, welcome to Work and Life. It's a blessing to be here with you, brother. Thanks for the invitation, man. Well, let me tell everyone just a little bit about you before we uh, jump into our conversation. After graduating from Penn's College of Arts and Sciences in 2000, Chaz served in both hospital and hospice chaplaincies and as a street outreach worker to individuals experiencing homelessness in Philadelphia before returning to his alma mater. As vice president for social equity and community at Penn, he's overseeing the university's Projects for Progress, which is a new fund intended to encourage students, faculty, and staff to design and implement pilot projects based on innovative research that'll advance Penn's aim of a more inclusive university and community. He also works with university leaders to expand successful initiatives across the campus. Uh, Prominent among them, Penn's ongoing campaign for community, as well as to convene university events and other programming centered around social equity and community themes. He's the author of five books, including Pond River Ocean Range, uh, Rain rather, Pond River Ocean Rain, a collection of brief essays about going deeper with God and coming very soon, beginning of November, The Bottom, a theopoetic of the streets, which we'll be talking a bit about in the show today. Chaz, really appreciate your taking time to chat with me today. Oh, it means a lot, man. I've been a fan of yours from afar. You know, I, I, I love this notion of um, this, not just, it's more than work-life balance, but but all that you're sort of putting out there, specifically speaking from the perch of Wharton um, and with, with the, the influence that our, that our school has, you know, you're changing lives. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of all that you've done and are doing. I mean that sincerely. Well, that's very kind of you, Jazz. I'm uh, means a lot to me to hear th- hear that from you. Uh, well, you know the 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 issue of bridging societal divides could not be more important today, as we in this country increasingly live in uh, a divided world, in silos, uh, go to school in segregated environments, get our information from separate sources, and don't even share the same set of facts about 
what's true, what's real in our social lives, in our culture. What can be done to heal these divisions? Mm. What, what's top of mind for you as you think about that, which I'm sure is on your mind a lot? It's, it's a hard question, man. I mean, I, <laughs> I know, but I, I want to start big. You came with the big one early. I mean, you know, it's, I had an old uh, mentor. He was the head chaplain at the hospital when I worked there. His name was Ralph Kayampa. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful guy. And we kind of used to call him Yoda. He was a small dude with kind of uh, big, big ears uh, with, with, with that wisdom and, and, and gravity. Gravitas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had this sort of, technique in therapy that he would talk about called reverent acknowledgement. And the point of that was when one is in a counseling situation, mm-hmm. very often people will say, well, what's wrong? And they'll say, well, this is wrong. And, and my, my house, my dishwasher's broken and this is going on. And the reverent acknowledgement is sort of naming the fear, naming the feelings rather mm-hmm. beneath all that someone is saying. It's sort of labeling the emotion rather than the surface level, essentially symptoms. And so, I bring that up because I think if one looks at the symptoms of today, mm-hmm. major distrust, uh, as you said, sort of deep divisions, um, and, and even more like deep dislike and disdain for quote the other side of whatever range of issues it is, what's the feeling beneath it? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I sort of let a little slip earlier. I, I think one of the big feelings beneath what we're going through right now is fear. Mm-hmm. And it's in, in, in an odd way, in an ironic way, kind of something that bonds different sides. It's, I think, the thing that is motivating the distrust, that is motivating the fact that I don't want to listen to your news source, that I hate your candidate, that I, that I completely disagree with you. It's a great fear of the other side. And, 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 and I think part of the beginning of healing division is one understanding what's motivating all of us. With that understanding, I think can come potentially a compassion because it's easy for me as, as someone's on a certain political side to label them as out of touch, mean-spirited, whatever other, other label. It's, it's hard for me to say, you know, that is someone who also wants their kids to grow up in a better world. That's someone who's also afraid of a political change or continuation. That's also someone over there who has dreams and aspirations and things, and, and if I can sort of move from understanding to compassion, then maybe we can sort of stitch up a little bit of the divisions, not in the name of moving toward unanimity or, or of becoming the same, mm-hmm. but at least getting past hate and getting past sort of the dehumanization of the other side. Uh, so, so again, I think it is a sort of understanding and then compassion and then, you know, maybe taking one step toward each other. And that's such a difficult thing to do for, for all of us. Um, it's, it's a topic we talk a lot about on the show is how you see the world from the perspective of others, uh, which is a critical aspect of leadership and essential to creating harmony among the different parts of life, you know, connecting with how you know, the hearts and minds of the people surrounding you in your real world uh, through their eyes, what what do they see? And it's it's something that we we teach about in my classes uh, here at Wharton and elsewhere. How you really require discipline and commitment to a shared future to be able to do that, to take in the perspective of others, um, and to try to find common ground. But it seems such a difficult task these days and you are now right in the center of it here in our community um you know universities like ours like penn are in an excellent position it seems to me to not only not only because we're a research and teaching institution where the goal is knowledge that's why we're here to develop share knowledge a place where you know we're committed to learning we're committed to understanding the world that's that's our our reason for being, that's our purpose, but also because we're an urban campus. Uh, we're in West Philadelphia. We have the opportunity to have our, our privileged students interact with those less advantaged in society that's surrounding our campus. Can you give us, you know, just a kind of introduction to what we're doing now to advance the cause of uh, 
greater equity and, and justice in our community? You know, a place like Penn, um, these sort of ancient, American ancient, uh, old institutions, you know, Penn, we're, we're sneaking up on what, you know, 250 years kind mm-hmm. of, of existence here in Philadelphia and in, in, in the country. And, and, and so I, I say that because you end up having a very complex kind of checkered past and present. Um, in one regard, I would say Penn does more than anyone, you know, whether it's sort of the, the day-to-day stuff that our students are doing in our community. Um, small things like after-school tutoring or kind of in-class uh, teacher's aid stuff. Uh, you know, we treat a ton of people for free in our hospitals. I think we're, we're healing more people from COVID than just about anybody in the region. We do free dental care, nursing, like all of that mm-hmm. on top of what our, our Netter Center for Community Partnerships is doing and the, the efforts of the president's office around kind of um, helping first gen low income students come here for free and the way that that changes trajectory of a family, like that, that stuff is amazing. And mm-hmm. on top of just like provide more jobs than like anybody else besides like Walmart and like the, the state. So like we, we, we do a lot of good on the other hand, we have sort of complex histories too, where, you know, there's evidence that, uh, that we, any colonial institution has connections to slavery. Mm-hmm. And some of our early money and endowment was sort of dirty slave money. Mm-hmm. Or more contemporarily, you know, we really, we, we participated in a dislocation of an entire neighborhood that was called the black bottom. Mm-hmm. Or some of the research that was done, um, the kind of like racist research um, based on sort of skull size and things like that. Like a lot of that originated at, at Penn. Mm-hmm. And so a part of what we need to do is not just sort of rest on the laurels of like the good service and things that we're doing now, but institutions like Penn have to make it right. Even though none of us were here when there were enslaved Africans sort of walking on campus. And none of us who work here right now were involved in the decision-making to sort of um, dis- dislocate sort of folks who live in the bottom, but we have a charge to make it right. And, and I think that we can. You're hopeful. I ask, you are hopeful. Is that right? I am. No, I, I believe. I mean, and, and I think in general, I'm a, a, an optimist oriented, optimistic oriented person, but I, I also see good fruit. And then I'll give you another example, you know, part of the, the new role um, in social equity and community on campus is we serve as, if I can borrow some business language, kind of an internal consultant to, to uh-huh. folk on campus. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I've been kind of going on this sort of Zoom parade around to different departments. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the people you'd expect to be doing this work, doing this work. It's not just our cultural centers or community mm-hmm. service hubs. It's like the chemistry department. It, it's, it's our arboretum. It's like the football team. Mm-hmm. It's old fraternities that haven't had like a black member in like a decade. Like mm-hmm. they are asking, what can we do to diversify our space, mm-hmm. to repair what's been broken in the past, to help inequities in our community, educationally, healthcare wise, just broadly, what can we do around bigotry? They're doing small things like reading books. They're doing big things like changing policies. I have hope. And so even though well, we're got still- boys and give you a sense of optimism when you, when you see wow. energy for positive change, let me remind listeners, this is work and life on business radio, Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. And it's my pleasure to be speaking today with Reverend Chaz Howard, who is vice president for social equity and community at the university of Pennsylvania, as well as our university chaplain, uh, yeah, there are bright spots, and I and I want to I want to hear more about that. You mentioned the Black Bottom, and your your forthcoming book uh, is, um, I think, related to to that. Uh, can you talk about what your hopes are, what your goals are for uh, the book that's coming out very shortly? It means a lot that you're asking about it. I'm, I'm most excited and very, very nervous about, um, about this project. You know, it feels like my last book, Ponder of Ocean Rain, was pretty straightforward kind of um, spiritual text around finding peace and hope. And, and it, was, it felt like a bunch of little small sermons or devartoras kind of in there. This is sort of like a quirky sophomore album 
that's like, you know, taking artistic risks and stuff like that, that uh-huh. people tend to sort of pan when artists uh, do that. But, you know, this, this text, I, I entitled it The Bottom, A Theopoetic of the Streets for a couple of reasons. One, it's, I, I'm telling a story differently. And I think about uh, Emily Dickinson's quote in her old poem, tell it slant. She says, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Mm. And that I think she refers to the fact that there are truths, there are realities, there are, um, there are experiences that sometimes can hit differently if we tell it from an artistic point of view. Mm-hmm. In the way that well, that's true with painting, or, or in my case here, poetry. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to do a couple of things with the, with the project. I try to sort of bring to life and bring to mainstream the marginalized experience of people on the streets, specifically people who are navigating homelessness. Mm-hmm. I also sort of do a retelling of the Moses narrative uh, from, from Torah where, uh, you know, Moses who is, is born to use the kind of um, cartoon version of it, the Prince of Egypt, but, but leaves all of that behind to go down and be with the enslaved Hebrews and to work for their liberation ultimately. The retelling here sort of set in a place like Penn where a, a professor is sort of challenged to leave behind sort of the, the palace that is their university and to go and be with those on the streets and work for their liberation. And I tell all this through a, like a novel in verse sort of format. And it's meant to be a challenge to all of us who are kind of up here to come down and be with people and work for change in whatever sort of setting, whatever quote Egypt we're all living in. So the book is called The Bottom, A Theopoetic of the Streets. Why, why do you call it The Bottom? Yeah, so and you're wise to sort of pick up on the fact that, again, Penn is near this neighborhood called, the, was near this, this neighborhood that used to exist called The Black Bottom. And I alluded to that in, um, in the text. And, and it's such a powerful name for a neighborhood, a neighborhood that uh, socioeconomically was down there on the bottom compared to those of us who are kind of out here, quote, on the main line or up there in the Ivy Tower. Um, likewise, I try to articulate a new type of liberation theology called a, a theology of the bottom. And so mm-hmm. reorienting, recentering theological reflection, recentering kind of human reflection to people who are down on the bottom from that perspective bringing primacy there rather than the perspective of those of us who are in power, those of us who are up here. And so it's a call to go down to the bottom and it's a nod to the old neighborhood, the black bottom. And uh, I understand that you're donating the proceeds to charity. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, I, I, I felt this on my heart when I was writing it, that you know, 100%, 100% of the royalties I'm donating to mm-hmm. organizations that are, serving people who are on the street and one of which is sort of covenant house. It's a, a youth shelter here in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Another is a place called project home. I used to work um, as a street outreach worker, engaging people on the streets through project home. And a lot of the stories and kind of, you know, references and images come from my time working at project home. So 100% of the, of the proceeds, well, I won't see a penny of it. It all goes out to, to people who are working to, to break the cycle of, of chronic homelessness and in extreme poverty. And what is your hope for what you would like a reader to experience and, and to come away with having uh, joined you on, on that journey in the bottom a theopoetics of the streets? I, I want them to care. I want, I want people to care. You know, I, I, there was a news item missed in the last couple of weeks that I think the, the world bank described several million more people because of the pandemic and the economic fallout are going to be moving into extreme poverty around the world. Mm-hmm. That's on top of the you know, several 176 million people who are already living in extreme poverty. I didn't even get any coverage in the States or even just in, in the way we're thinking about COVID in, in the U S right now, we're thinking about sort of vaccines and treatments and numbers going up and, in in a way this is affecting lives. Nowhere in the conversation are we talking about people on the street, COVID and homeless shelters, what this means for the poor. I I think I want readers to care and then beyond care to kind of come down and 
one of the phrases I've, I've liked over the years is come down and put legs on your faith, put, put legs on your ethics and your morals. Don't just talk about it. Like let's, let's be about it. That's easier said than done. It's hard. But I think if we walk down to the bottom with whatever we believe, maybe we can help people climb up out of the bottom as well. So what is it that you find that people have difficulty with in uh, taking that kind of journey themselves and, and seeing the world from the perspective of, of the bottom? Where's, where's the greatest resistance or the, the greatest source of resistance to, to being open to that and to investing in, in, in that sort of exploration? It's a really rich question, man. I, I think a part of the answer is in because we are mostly concerned with ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's not to sort of allude to like a selfishness or necessarily even a self-centeredness. We can call it that. I mean, that's how I think of it, but okay. I mean, we're, we're looking out for number one, we're, you know, and we're and, animals. And we are. And, and particularly in a moment where a lot of us are in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us have been in survival mode for a while. The unemployment rates are up. We're nervous around. This, this is manifest in every aspect of life. People are saving and hoarding cash rather than investing it in, in, in levels they haven't done in a long time. Mm-hmm. Five million more people are first-time gun owners in America during 2020 uh, than before. This is manifesting in like the way that our, our, our shopping tech, tech, our shopping patterns, the way that we're online. We're looking out for us because we're scared, because we're afraid. And I think this, this alludes to sort of people on the street too. It's not so much that we hate people on the streets or even that we hate people of different races or different religions. We're just afraid and like, I want to live. I want to survive. And, and that's making me not think about you and others because me and my family got to get through. And, and that's human. But if we're all looking out for each other, well, we're, we're doomed. If we're all looking out for ourselves rather than each other, we're doomed. And, and the, the wisdom that you draw from, well, your own experience, but, you know, going back to this, Moses' story of uh, liberation, personal liberation, what, what do you draw from that in terms of how, how we as individuals, not to mention collectively, can get past that self-centered view of the world? What does it take? None of us have made it on our own. And this is a very um, sort of counter American myth kind of notion. I think very much we're pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and like, mm-hmm. if, if you work hard enough, anybody can make it in. And like, it, maybe there's some glimpses of truth in some of that, but the reality is none of us made it here on our own. We see this with our students here, the brightest kids who, who are great, you know, smart overachievers had someone drive them to school, had someone teach them to read, had someone drive them to practice, all that. And, and, and most of us with like jobs, someone wrote us a job reference or someone like vouched for us and, and, and all of that. And I think it's true in bigger situations too, whether it's an exodus outside of Egypt with sort of divine intervention and a mosaic kind of intervention or kind of us getting out of, out of our own way, being a knucklehead in high school, having somebody say, you know what, you should try going to school or, you know what, I think you'd be a good professor. You'd be a good lawyer, doctor. And, none of us made it on our own and none of us will make it on our own. Certainly the next generation won't make it unless we invest in them too. Yes. So a recognition that, you know, you got help from other people. You wouldn't be where you are. You're standing on the, on the shoulders of, of people who have sacrificed and, and, and reached out or in, in other ways gave you an advantage, gave you a boost, gave you some motivation, gave you access, whatever it was. So it's, 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 it's on you as a human being in our world today to make sure that you're doing the same thing. But yet there's this fear, there's this self-centeredness, there's this sense of uh, um, I've got to you know, fight for my own. Uh, that that precludes that kind of thinking. So, how do you help people get past that? How, and and has the bottom helped people get get past that? I, I although I suspect that by the time somebody gets to actually opening the pages of your book, they're they're probably already there. <laughs> um, so, like, 
and maybe this is this will be the the topic that we pick up we have to break in about a minute but what i i'm sure a lot of listeners are you know uh, thinking about here is yeah that all sounds great i know that i need to be giving back more but heck i you know i've i've just got to figure out how to get through the day with my you know, my kids are on trying to learn something in school, but they're here at home and, and I've got, you know, a boss who's uh, expecting me to work 24 seven. Now, how am I supposed to get beyond my own, my own day to day and help other people? What's in it for me, Reverend? They might be thinking. What's in it for, for us is it makes us a better person. It makes mm-hmm. this a better world. And, you know, when, when we love each other, and I think ultimately that, that is the remedy for the fear and selfishness is sort of a selfless love. When we love each other, we end up fully, finally, I think, being human. And before that, like, we're just in process. And so what's in it for you, you're, you become a better person. You're, there's happiness, there's joy. And, you know, I think our religious traditions have different answers to this too, but it, it's a safer, better world this way rather than us all hunkering down uh, saying good luck to the person across the street without helping. We're going to pick up on this theme and, and get into what uh, the business community, how, how the business community fits into this uh, puzzle. When we come back, uh, we'll take a short break here. Please don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to be continuing my conversation with Reverend Chaz Howard, the author most recently of The Bottom a theopoetic of the streets. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. And my guest today is the Reverend Charles, we call him Chaz Howard. He's the chaplain for the University of Pennsylvania and he was recently appointed to serve as the first ever vice president for social equity and community at the University of Pennsylvania earlier this year. So, Chaz, uh, tell us about uh, what the Office of the Vice President of Social Equity and Community does. What's, what's your mission? Uh, what's your role? It's brand new. It's, uh, it's an exciting new opportunity. You know, I, I, I love... Penn, and I have, and I'm, you know, creeping up on a quarter century uh, connected to the university. It's it's home for me. Even I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland, but you know, West Philly now, and 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 our campus between 33rd and 40th is 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 as much home for me as as, as Bmore is. And so, you know, Dr. Gutman, our president, gave me a call this summer, and the timing is important because mm-hmm. uh, she said she'd been thinking about moving in this direction for the last several months, but the tragedies of the murder of George Floyd mm-hmm. and the murder of Breonna Taylor and the way that our, our city and our country was literally on fire and the way that, if, if I may, many of our hearts were kind of on fire uh, to work for justice in a lot of ways with the catalyst for her to say, we need to act on this now. And so, you know, I, I, she, she gave me a shout and we had a good conversation over the summer and she sort of cast her vision for someone who could sort of help us have these conversations at a high level on campus, thinking about sort of equity and uh, social justice in, on Penn's campus, but also in the surrounding community that Penn is a part of. And that community is West Philly, Philly, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. states and globally. And so a lot of it is sort of, as I mentioned before, kind of serving as an internal consultant, helping different parts of the university think about this question, uh, whether that's what is, what is working for equity in our department or in our club look like, and what is working for equity through our department look like. So the quick tangent example would be having a conversation with our med school dean, Larry Jamieson, who's a brilliant world-class physician and leader, with him around what are some things we can do to diversify certain departments that historically underrepresented minorities just haven't been a part of what can we do uh, pipeline wise what can we do recruitment wise but then he's also holding questions like there are illnesses that disproportionately affect communities of color for example colon cancer to make a reference to the late Chadwick Boseman um, 
what are some things that Penn Medicine can do around helping people get screened and tested around the sort of the inequities within health, mm-hmm. internal and external uh, thing. Secondarily, sort of having conversations on campus around, for example, Penn's relationship with the police or with the statues and paintings and building names on our campus or, you know, social responsibility with, uh, with, with our endowment and with sort of the decisions we're making around hiring and things. So having these hard, helping, helping us all have these hard conversations with no promise of where we land, mm-hmm. but sort of treading into uh, these are rough waters with the intent of, of emerging as a better steward of the gifts that we have as a university. So are you being roundly welcomed with open arms and big hugs, or are there some people who are kind of standing at a bit of a distance thinking, mm, uh, mm, I don't know. Well, social distancing it means I'm not getting a lot of hugs at all. And we're all six <laughs> feet apart. So. Of course. I was speaking figuratively. No, I, I think a part of the, the blessing, and maybe this is Dr. Gutman and, and our provost Pritchett's sort of strategy. I, I've been here a long time. Mm-hmm. And and I've I'm really grateful for a lot of relationships with people who I who I love and I know who love me who have become family, and I think that helps wading into some of these conversations uh, with a base trust and and a, and a base familiarity. And so there is something something to be said about bringing fresh eyes into situations, but there's also something nice about someone who knows Penn and is known and knows a lot of people at Penn. So I think that that's certainly helped. I think the other thing too is, you know, I, I, I really do believe we can do better. And, and I try to sort of share that hope with others. And I, and I think people are catching that. And and finally, I think sincerely, everyone really wants us to do better as a world. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have not had one conversation yet with anyone on campus. Who's like, now we're good. We don't need to work on this. We're fine. Not a single person. Mm -hmm. We may disagree on how we get to progress. We may disagree on what progress looks like. Mm -hmm. There's no one who feels like we've arrived as a, as a community or as, as a, as a nation. Mm -hmm. And and that's, that's encouraging when I I would rather fight about the the road there rather than whether we need to leave or not. So systemic racism, uh, which is embedded in our lives in the society uh, and, and in our community um, how, how has that conversation been for you over the last, well, since you've been in this role? Well, it's, I mean, it's very personal. You know, I'm African-American and every city I've lived in, I've been stopped. I've been profiled by the police. Mm-hmm. Every school I've been a part of, I've, I've experienced uh, racism in various forms, including Penn when I was a student, including, you know, my graduate studies as well whether it's sort of literally being called the N-word on the football field growing up or, or having other fraternities throw act like your black parties um, or having people think I only got into schools because of affirmative action or because I can run fast or jump high um, or being stopped, you know, um, by, by the police when I was in seminary, like all of that, or, or show the other complexities of, of not having any black faculty members in like elementary school. And so, you know, or, or, or other sort of, cruel systemic things that that have affected me personally. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who haven't seen that, mm-hmm. who not, not out of any sort of maliciousness, I think, but just their eyes have not been open to pain. This has been one of the, if there was a silver lining to the summer, mm-hmm. the fact that a lot of people have said, I had no idea. Right. I mean, there's a part of me that wants to roll my eyes. Like, dude, you've lived in America all these years and you had no idea that, Black people get stopped by the cops and killed or, or, or whatever. On the other hand, I'm grateful that that's fantastic. People are willing to learn. They're willing to read there books is like there isn't, there is an awakening. You know, my, my kids would call it getting woke, but there is a real awakening to the pain. And not only that, an awakening to the, the, the need to act. Mm-hmm. So what's been, what's been your experience now in your new role in addressing the question of systemic racism in terms of, uh, you know, how faculty have responded, parents of students, uh, students themselves, administrators, 
uh, you know, people who've been around for a while who, who are like, whoa, I, what? That's a problem? Gee, I, I never knew. Uh, those people who are becoming more conscious and aware, finally, of the uh, inherent racism in, in our society. Uh, are, you're saying that you're finding that there's a universal openness to exploring that question and, and understanding what, what can be done to, to repair it? I, I think so. I mean, I, I don't want to be naive and act like there isn't a, a another side of this. I mean, I think I, I don't, I make no political, I make no assumptions about the political positions of people who are listening here, but you know, the, the current presidential administration in DC making stances around pushing back on critical race theory and, and canceling training around, around racism and anti-racism in federal mm-hmm. things that's a very different position from where I am. And, and, and I would argue from where the majority of our country is. So definitely not everybody is on board with this. I, I do think Penn's unique. I mean, I think we, I, I, we don't love labels, but I think we trend more liberal on this kind of stuff. Um, one of the things that I think is different this time. So I've been a part of Black Lives Matter demonstrations and, and writing and speaking for, for years. And this is sort of the second wave that's as different than the kind of the first wave with uh, after the, after the killing of Trayvon Martin and um, Freddie Gray in my hometown of Baltimore and others. What's different this time is one, it's a much more diverse coalition fighting for change. You know, a lot of the folks on the street, the protests here in Philly, it was mostly non-black people out there, Mm -hmm. which I think is a powerful, beautiful thing. Yeah. What'd that feel like for you to be among a a more diverse coalition of citizens, uh, standing up and and speaking up. You feel seen, you feel like people care. You know I mean? I think it's, it's a a bunch of wonderful suburban people coming down there to risk arrest in Mm -hmm. city hall. You know, the, the images of like Amish people for black lives matter. That's profound. That's a big, big, big deal. That's a beautiful thing. And people getting in it with us, but not just sort of getting in it with us, but really committing to working for change. And so, you know, my wife's book club out here, we live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Her book club, like the last several books have been connected to sort of racism and, and marginalized populations rather than some of the other kind of like lighter stuff that, that they're reading in, in the past. Or a place like Penn, who's not just doing like diversity training, but committing millions of dollars to work for change across a range of fields. That that's, that's what's different too. And that, that gives me hope. It's not just, Hey, let's all like have a speak out and listen to people's grievances, but we are going to commit major granting money to, to work for healthcare inequities, educational inequities, legal inequities. Like that's y'all are serious this time. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Let me remind listeners, this is work and life. On Business Radio, Sirius XM 132, I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Chaz Howard, who's the Vice President for Social Equity and Community at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also our chaplain, and uh, he's a published author. His new book is called The Bottom, A Theopoetic of the Streets. And, you know, this is work and life. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the business world. What's your interaction with... uh, uh, the business community in in your role as uh, as a vice president for social equity and community here at Penn. You know, I think the first thing I would say is I think you know we are blessed to have a new dean in our Wharton School. I've I've loved the last several deans who I've had a chance to work with who've been brilliant and, and, and friends. Uh, but but Dean Erica James coming in, I think, is a is is a win for the university and for the business world in general. Mm-hmm. I think so. I've I've enjoyed being on a couple of committees with her and having a couple of conversations with her. I, I think she is going to be a a game changer, not just on campus, but really broadly mm-hmm. in the business world. You know, Wharton um, Wharton graduates are kind of everywhere doing really really good work, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Likewise, to remind listeners, Erica James, our new dean who just started a few months ago here at the Wharton School, is an African-American woman. Please continue, Jess. Absolutely. And and, and a brilliant scholar and and leader. And and if you don't know, you got to know. You got to look her up and and Mm -hmm. definitely spend some time there. Yep. A lot of the conversations we've been having, too, have been around applying um, justice conscious ethics 
and morals to to business too. And I mean, this Wharton's been, I think, on the not the big commercial for us or anything like that, but I think this notion of sort of socially conscious um, business is something that our school has been a part of for a while. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it's sort of social conscious philanthropy or any other aspect, like y'all have been on the cutting edge of, of that. How do you bring that conversation to sort of racism, sexism and homophobia and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia? Like how do we bring that conversation there and then work for justice? And, and I don't think these need to be mutually exclusive. Some of my, one of my college roommates um, has been in business for a while and we sort of have been having these conversations that it, it's not, one, one can, can work for profit, one can sort of work for financial success and to work for justice and the liberation of, of other people. And I mean, I, I think this sort of, again, I, I apologize for veering toward politics too much. Don't but, apologize. <laughs> but, you know, it, I think we're trying to sort of, as a university, stay out of it, even though the current president is a Penn grad and the, the Democratic challenger is a Penn professor. So we really, it, it's hard to stay fully out of it. But people sort of look at these things like, with one president, the belief is that the market will be stronger. I actually don't think that's totally true, but, but that our, you know, our, our market is, is thriving and stocks are higher than they are the Dow and like all that kind of stuff. And that, that it, that it's worth it. it. It's worth sort of having policies that are cruel toward people of Mexican descent, sort of cruel immigration policies. It, 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 it's worth sort of having these other, um, it, it's worth suffering racism and, and winks and nods to, to white nationalists for our business. I, I don't think it has to be that way. Well, and there's a lot of evidence that that's, that's a counterproductive point of view. What are you encountering on, on Walnut street, <laughs> you know, which is a, a commercial uh, lane through our campus um, in terms of the local business community, are you engaged uh, with the local business community as part of your efforts? So, I mean, yeah. I mean, the first thing I should say is like, they have been devastated by, by COVID, like, like every small business, you know, I mean, we're, Penn is like, we're feeling it, but Penn's going to be okay. We'll, we'll survive this. Whether it's like those little itty bitty food trucks that rely on students to kind of mm-hmm. keep them in business or you know, retail spots that just aren't getting it the way that, you know, they would during a normal school year, they're, they're suffering. And I think it's important to name that first. Yet simultaneously, you're right. Like it's it's important that as a university or as any institution that is one of these like anchor institutions in a community like Penn or like a university or like whatever, that we be thinking about how many of our businesses are minority owned or owned by women, hmm. and, and and how many of the people who are working on our construction sites or working in our hospitals. Like we have to make sure that we're not just thinking about what's the best bang for our buck, but what can make the the biggest difference down down that part of the economy. I mean, you're, you're it, it's it's very few of us actually have investments in the market. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, it, it's tragically, particularly in in minority communities, very few people have any retirement account at all, let alone play in the stock market. The real economy is is folks who are sort of having to lay off the cashiers at their little business down there, or who can't open their bar, and and I don't think they should right now. You know, so I, I, are you, are you involved in that aspect of our community? I mean, does that does your role take you into that realm? Yeah, and I mean, Penn's been having these conversations for a while. There's a brother named Glenn Bryan who works in our office of um, government and community relations, who I think has been really pushing this conversation around um, minority businesses. Mm-hmm. And Craig Connerly, our EVP, I think has done a terrific job with this as well, and 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 regular conversations with with them on some of this, but just because we've done okay in the last 10 years doesn't mean that the future is promised. None of us are going to be here forever. So we have to make sure that we lock some stuff in and make right the wrongs we've done in the past. And that's hard. That is hard because that means uh, changing the way people view the world. Uh, And I think in in our closing few minutes here, we're, we're sort of returning back to where we started and that is the, you know, how, how you take into account the perspective of other people, particularly their fears. 
um, and to have compassion and to suffer with them, and uh, which is what compassion means, right? To suffer with and to be able to access the, the fears and anxieties of the people around you to, as you say, to, to name first those emotions. I think that's such a, a powerful idea. Uh, what do you hope for the, the, we have a, as we always do, one of the wonderful things about being a part of a university community is that every year around this time, there's a new group of people coming in uh, to begin their lives as adults in our society. Um, so as you think about the class uh, that's going to be graduating four years from now, what, what's your greatest hope for them? You know, my, uh, one of my little cousins is a first-year student here. Mm-hmm. I've been right now, and, and tragically, this is not the freshman year she envisioned. You know, of course not. Which is, and that's across the country. It's just, it's just a hard time. I, I think my hope is that they will run their leg of this race well. You know, we, we as, at Penn, we're privileged to host the Penn Relays, and it's a great track meet. And you know, April. The sort of us handing the baton to the next you know, generation of runners, I think, is is one that I think about a lot. I don't. We will not solve racism and poverty and other sort of forms of inequity in the next three or four years on on campus or anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I think we can move the needle, and I, I I don't want that to be interpreted as settling. I think that's a big part of kind of our American experiment is trying to get better every year. And, and I want this generation of first year students and the families around them and us who are working here right now to, to run our leg and make Penn a little bit better, maybe a lot bit better. Maybe we will run faster than previous generations and really do some really cool stuff. And if we can do that, if we can continue to build a little bit better every year, then I think the America that our grandkids will inherit, the world our grandkids will inherit, will be very, very different. I think the trap is to try to go back to the old days like that was great for everybody. It wasn't. It wasn't. I think we can do better, and I think we will do better. So so when you're done running your leg of the race, Reverend, what, what's going to be different, do you, do you hope? I'm not, not asking you to make a promise or a contract that'll come back and 15 years and hold you to, but as you look to the future, what's your, what's your hope? Because uh, yeah, I think it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg who famously said real change, enduring change happens one step at a time. What, what, what are the steps that you're hoping to, to take uh, to get to what you would see as a fruitful, a fruitful course in this, in this role? I love that you invoked the late justice mayor memory before blessing man. It already is. I, Oh, yes. You know, I think my, my hope, if, if, if I can sort of run with the image from, from my Jewish sisters and brothers, this notion of repairing the world, this notion of tikkun olam, I think, I think my hope is that we can sort of pick up a couple of the pieces that have been broken. I, I, at the end of, I think, the previous presidential administration, a lot of us were dreaming I think at the end of this presidential administration, I think a lot of us are planning to, to repair. And uh, I, I hope that in the next couple of years, we can fix a lot that's been broken. We are more divided now than we were four years ago, full stop, without question. I hope that we can sort of stitch some of that back together. There are more people sleeping on the streets right now than there were a year ago. I hope that we can sort of fix that too. I think our, our, we distrust each other more I think these are things that we can start on campus and that can sort of ripple out and, 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 and heal. So I think those are, those are part of it. And, and I want, I, I'll, I'll land here. I have a 16 year old and her perspective on what the world is, has changed so much the last couple of years. She, she's sort of starting to see it as like a, like a sad place where bad things are happening and we have to perpetually resist sort of, you know, authoritarian bigots. I I don't want her to sort of have to go through life like that. I want her to sort of think about, hey, what can we do to sort of make this an amazing planet and make it a place where like we are loving and exciting and learning rather than a perpetual state of resistance or like conservation so that we don't lose it. In in the 30 seconds we have left, Reverend, what are you doing to help her to, to steer her in that more optimistic direction and to infuse in her some of the the passion and hope that you have for humanity? 
She's, she's got to meet. Despite what she is seeing in the real world. Well, there, there, there's different things to see. And so, you know, I, I drag her and my other girls along to, to them. So they're going to listen to the show and they're going to, they're going to hear your voice and they're going to see uh-huh. what Patty's doing behind the scenes. And like, and, and I want them to read good books and, and I want them to sort of meet hope bringers rather than doom bringers. Mm-hmm. I want them like not just to sort of look at sad stories on, on TV. So I think, I think sort of sharing good stories and telling good stories is a part of it. Mm-hmm. And then finally, like, I can't fall over the cliff of despair myself. As long as I can sort of hold out hope, maybe they'll catch a part of that too. It, this morning was hard. I was sad this morning. I want to get out of bed this morning because I'm just like, this is, we're in such a hard moment in the planet. On the other hand, we keep getting out of bed because I think a better day is coming. That's, I think, a, a fine note for us to close on. Uh, Chaz, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Where's the best place for listeners to find out more about your forthcoming book? and to learn more about what you, what we are doing here at Penn. Oh, you're generous. You know, I, we got a couple of different spots. I'd love to connect with you on social media. I'm at Chaz underscore Howard on Twitter. I'm on Facebook too. I have a, a website. I'm embarrassed to say this, but I have a website, charleslattimorehoward.com. You can sort of find my publications on there. Or you can just Google the bottom, a theopoetic of the streets. And I'd love if you wanted to pre-order the book or anything like that. Again, all, all the right. posts you want to have folks on the street. It's a great website. People go there. Uh, CharlesLattimoreHoward.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Uh, Don't forget to tune in 5 p.m. Eastern next week. If you want to write about the show, just mail me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Our station is at businessradio at uh, SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXMBusiness. I'm at Stu Friedman. And if you go to TotalLeadership.org, you can find... Uh, free podcast versions of the show a, a little while down the road and some other information about what we do to help to, well, to try to heal the broken world. Takun alum. That's what we're all about, creating a little bit more harmony, a little bit more peace. Thanks, Patty Hall and our sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.